This is uh, Advanced Patient Care Theory 1, Unit 3, Part 7, uh, Cardiovascular Causes. So um, let's talk about um, pulmonary edema and pulmonary embolus. So acute pulmonary edema, we're talking primarily about cardiogenic pulmonary edema, right? So uh, in CHF, there's uh, fluid backs up into, uh, into the lungs, and there's an increase in hydrostatic pressure in the pulmonary capillaries, and um, fluid leaks. Um, into the interstitium, which can give you uh, cardiac asthma, and then into the alveoli, which gives you pulmonary edema. And um, non-cardiogenic causes include abnormal permeability, sepsis, inhalation injuries, drugs, salicylates, certain tocolytics, uh, renal failure, um, high altitude. Uh, it's funny, I, I don't know if I told you this, but um, there's an ER physician by the name of Tyler Andre who co-founded a virtual reality company called SimX, and we, he and I met in virtual reality. Did I tell you this story? Okay. So he and I met in virtual reality and we resuscitated four patients together. Uh, it was pretty wild, right? Because I'm talking to him across the bed from the sick patient. And we did one scenario where there was uh, soldiers up in the mountains and um, um, one of them was in respiratory distress and I went up to him and auscultated his chest and I could hear diffuse uh, bilateral crackles. And um, I said, you know, because I have an aviation background, I said, it sounds like he's got um, uh, high altitude pulmonary edema. And uh, the doc said, yep, that's it, exactly. And, but the scenario wasn't to diagnose the patient. The scenario was how I communicated this to his CO to say that he had to leave the mission, that he could not carry on in the mission. So it was a lower ranking medic talking to a higher ranking commanding officer telling him that this guy couldn't continue the mission and to see if I would break under pressure. So <laughs> it was pretty wild. Pretty wild. Anyway, <clears throat> so uh, presentation typically, uh, they're dyspneic, uh, they're orthopneic, uh, they've got coarse bilateral crackles, they may have uh, you know history of paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, I love that term, PND. Do you ever document that term in your form? Like it's, it's an opportunity, right? You gotta look up the spelling though before you document it, otherwise you have no credibility whatsoever. And what's that? <coughs> Isn't it what? A Y. Yeah, nocturnal is a U instead of an E. <laughs> oh, is it? Sorry, Noct <laughs> Nocturnal is a U? Wait, you want to be sure. <laughs> I just said that he's so Oh, thank you, for, thank you for telling me that. I think it's a Y and then Brock Dismal too. Oh yeah, it's a Y, you're right. Oops. Is there an American <laughs> yeah, that's with an O U. <laughs> Isn't that backwards? How is it all these years you guys are the only ones who caught this? <laughs> I think I've got paroxysmal spelled correctly in all my other slides, but uh, yeah. There we go. That was so good. That better? Ten Right. Uh, has, anyone, has anyone had a patient in, in uh, fulminating pulmonary edema or you can actually see frothy sputum? Yeah, cool. Yes. They did not make it. What's that? <laughs> they did not make it. They died? Yeah. Were they VSA when you got there? No. The wildest uh, pulmonary edema patient, frothing pulmonary edema patient was uh, told to me about uh, by... Um, a medic uh, from Toronto um, 
You might know him. Let me pause this recording. I don't think so. I don't think so. But anyway, he so he and his ALS partner went to uh, an apartment for a guy um, with shortness of breath, and um, they knocked on the door, and uh, there was no answer, and they heard someone moving around in the apartment, so they opened the door, and this guy uh, had foam coming out of his mouth, and he looked really scared and paranoid. So they tried to approach him, and he started to run, uh, and he was running around the sofa, and he just ran around the sofa like two or three times and then collapsed VSA, and uh, they couldn't get him back. But they, s they said they tried to approach him and tried to stop him, and he just got more paranoid and more wild. I guess that's how hypoxia affects some people, and uh, then he just uh, went VSA. But um, so they may present with JVD, and JVD really, um, how do you know someone has JVD? What, what do you use as your sort of yardstick for JVD? Okay. So what position should the patient be in, I guess, for if you're... Yeah, so they should be semi-fowlers or <laughs> sitting in a 45 degree <laughs> angle. I haven't heard anyone say semi-fowlers in years. That's like a... No, semi-recumbent's on your side. Oh. Semi-recumbent's on your side. Semi-fowlers is semi-sitting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's old terminology. That's that's yeah. That's that's up there with uh, Rawls versus Crackles. Rawls, you know. You should never see Rawls. Oh, that was on a, a service test when I tested four years ago. Yeah, I would I would put a note. Who's the grandpa who wrote this? That's what I would say. Yeah, on examination. Yeah, old docs. Yeah, yeah. Well, like in British docs, we'll use, instead of PVCs, we'll say extrasystoles. It's extra like, systoles. what What the frick? <laughs> yeah, extrasystoles. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so JVD, basically JVD, they should be sitting at a 45 degree angle, and you're seeing the neck veins distended to the angle of the jaw, right? That's the really, really crude way of measuring JVD. Um, anyone who's lying down will have JVD, will have neck vein distension to the jaw. Just next time you're lying next to someone naked, just look at their neck. Well, I guess they don't have to be naked. They just have to, <laughs> just have, to have their neck exposed. Sorry. Well, if you're going to look at their neck veins, you might as well look at their pulsatile aorta and other things while you're there, right? If they're, if they're naked. <laughs> what kind of an ACP class is this anyway? So, uh, management, the only caveat here is, is uh, so for you, is CPAP is a standard way to go. CPAP um, has dramatically reduced um, admissions to ICU, dramatically reduced uh, need for um, mechanical ventilation, has reduced length of hospital stay. Uh, it's really made a huge difference putting patients on CPAP. In the past, we used to nasally intubate all the CHFers who were in significant distress, but the, the, the time when you might consider like a nasal intubation is in the patient who's obtunded, three-word dyspnea or unable to speak, and uh, they can't be CPAPed, right? Because uh, the directive is if they can't follow directions, you can't CPAP them, and those patients may be a candidate for nasotracheal intubation. <coughs> um, nitrates is what we use for CHFers. Um, used to be furosemide, but um, the evidence is not good for Lasix. The trouble with Lasix is that uh, 
um, you get you get some initial vasodilation, which reduces venous return, which is to reduce the workload on the heart, and CHFers feel better after you give them Lasix within the first 10 minutes. Uh, but then they become volume depleted, and they get a reflex tachycardia, and that exacerbates the CHF. So there have been a number of studies looking at uh, diuretics versus nitrates, and they found that nitrates uh, reduce length of hospital stay, reduce ICU emissions, um, combine that with, with CPAP, and you get much better outcomes than you do with diuretics. So this is why you don't see diuretics in anymore. I think there might be one or two services in the province that still carry furosemide. Am I right? Like in the northern, any of the northern service carry Lasix? No? Lasix, the only time Lasix would be indicated is if the patient's clearly hypervolemic. Like you get, you get lots of acute uh, exacerbated uh, CHFers who are normal volemic, most are normal volemic, but you get these patients who have like, like pitting edema, six inches of pitting edema down their legs. <laughs> Those patients are hypervolemic and they probably need a diuretic, but they can get that in hospital. Uh, okay, I don't think we need to go through the directives. Um, and uh, yeah, because I think um, the directives you need to go through sort of step by step, and, and it's just guidelines, right? It's just uh, uh, so I d we can go through them if you want. <laughs> well, maybe guidelines is a weak term. But uh, yeah. Um, You'll hate Janine now, you'll love her later, because trust me, she'll... Because she does kick your ass. Because it's going to get a lot worse than last Yeah, it gets worse. The ex her expectations are very high, for sure. Let's just say she scares me, so... <laughs> but she's good, she's amazing. Uh, so pulmonary embolus. Uh, the key with pulmonary embolus is the history, right? So if you've got someone who's having pleuritic chest pain and they're having, they're short of breath, um, on auscultation, chest is gonna be clear. Uh, unless they've had the pulmonary embolus for some time and they have a localized inflammation, you may hear a localized crackle, maybe a localized wheeze, but it'll be localized. But otherwise, your chest should be clear. And, but the key is in the history. So if they've got a history of a DVT, that's probably the biggest one. If they've got a history of clots in their legs uh, and they've got chest discomfort and shortness of breath and tachycardia, almost guaranteed they're a pulmonary embolus. Um, other things that predispose are things like venous stasis, so that's you know people who've been bedridden for a while, <coughs> history of CHF, paraplegia, they've been on a long flight, you know, 24 hours or so. If they've got a history of hypercoagulability, like they're obese, they have malignancy, pregnancy, they're on uh, estrogen replacement therapy, and if they've got endothelial <coughs> damage, so any recent trauma, surgery, burns, indwelling catheters, IV drug users, um, uh, and ultimately, um, you know, when they have an embolus, it causes infarction of the lungs, the lung parenchyma. So these patients, it, it's all history. Be interesting to see, you know, if in the future we get something like tenecteplase added to our drug list for, um, uh, you know, patients uh, before we take them to the PCI center and give them tenecteplase, or patients who are saying cardiac arrest and we have good reason to suspect pulmonary embolism best, best based, based on the history. Um, you know, there might be a good candidate for sort of a half dose tenecteplase. They talk about um, half dose. TPA for cardiac arrest suspected due to pulmonary embolism. So 
be interesting if it meets the pre-ansible. This is a, I thought this is a great image of a clot. Look at the size of this thing. That's a post-mortem um, shot, obviously, but that's just a massive, massive pulmonary embolism. I was told before like, not to rely on like, consolidated sounds and auscultation because unless you're like right on top of it, it's very unlikely you'll hear. So that wouldn't be a pulmonary embolus. That would be something like a tumor or a, or a pneumonia. Oh, because I think they were talking about like secondary crackles, maybe to like the increased pressure. Okay, yeah, so crackles. Yeah, I wouldn't but rely on that either. Very, very you'd have, yeah, you'd have to auscultate all over the place. And two, it would, it would have to be a pulmonary embolism that's been going on for hours, right, to give you an inflammation. And uh, so, yeah, it's not a reliable sign. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, so, typically, they're dyspneic. <coughs> uh, tachypneic, about 90, over 90% 90 of patients are tachypneic. Um, Sudden pleuritic pain. Uh, some people syncopize when uh, they have a big pulmonary embolus. So if you got a if you got a patient, if, if you get a 911 call for syncope, ask about chest pain. Uh, they're going to have equal entry bilaterally. But there may be localized crackles. That's you know, as Vanessa said, not reliable. They may have a cough, some splinting, some JVD, some hem uh, may or may not have hemoptysis, localized wheezing or crackles. Uh, tachycardia only has about a 35 to 50 percent sensitivity and uh, maybe diaphoretic, history of syncope and hypotension, 10 percent of patients actually present in shock, right? That would be a really big pulmonary embolus. So, yeah, I don't even know if syncopize is a word, but um, uh, who is it? Um, Scott Weingart uses the word syncopize. Any of you, any of you Scott Weingart fans? He has a podcast called EM Crit. It's a great, great podcast. <coughs> so goodbye. It's like vitally. Vitally is not a word, but for some reason people have adopted vitally stable. I, I'll just tell you right now, I hate the word stable, so don't use the word stable around me. It's a pet peeve for me. That's a good one, yeah. What were we going to say, Kate? <laughs> Yeah, so it's, it's purely mechanical, right? So imagine um, blood comes, comes back to your right side, yeah. goes through the pulmonary circuit to your left <laughs> side. So if there's a big blockage in a pulmonary artery, the blood coming from the right side, the venous return, can't get to the left side. And so consequently, you get markedly diminished cardiac output. What are the changes that will happen? Yeah, 10%. Like yeah, so, yeah, well, uh, basically 10% of pulmonary emboli. So 10% uh, of cases with pulmonary embolus. You'd have to, you'd have, so it's, it's going to be a big pulmonary embolus. You and I are more likely to encounter a patient who's VSA from a pulmonary embolus than someone who's hemodynamically unstable. Um, so <laughs> you can say unstable, just don't say stable. So the rule is, uh, when you work critical care, the rule is no one's uh, stable unless you've seen their vital signs, a uh, history of their vital signs from the last 24 hours. Um, so that's, it's a pet peeve around critical care circles. Use the word stable. So, yeah. What's that? You know, you just use, you just use a language like, uh, you just use language like the vital signs are unremarkable or they're within normal parameters. But I'll tell you, people misuse that all the time. 
you know, they'll say vital signs are within normal limits. And then the nurse looks at them, well, the patient's got a heart rate of 110. That's not normal, that's tachycardic. You know, so you're better off just reporting the vitals rather than saying. Um, Somewhat. Can you can you touch on the twelve lead? Well, what did you look? Yeah, um, twelve lead has a low sensitivity and low specificity. So I try to avoid twelve lead when it comes to pulmonary embolism. I think that's just more um, you know of interest okay. than anything else. Um, but I'm trying to remember now. If this Amomatu video has to do with, uh, I think it may have to do with pulmonary embolism. So uh, I can't remember. I'm just going to discontinue this recording for now.